Dave Davis. Oh, God. Wait, hold on. Are we on Facebook Live now? Yeah. Oh, whoa. <laughs> okay, well, I could have used, like, a marker there or something, but... You're supposed to clap. <laughs> You're supposed to clap so we know. Nothing you said was controversial. Okay. Let's oh, wait, so here, here, let's get started. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. Tutuhun. Spent Yeah. All right, so... half a day todos hamzu gwena hudzung, so now we are our are on Facebook Live, and so thank you to everyone who is watching right now. This is Independent Guahan's teaching for the month of May. And um, the topic for today will be rethinking economic truisms in Guam. And so um, for those of you that this is prime, so this is our first attempt at sort of a virtual teaching, because we've been live streaming them for a while, but this is our first one where we're trying to focus on getting people watching the stream and commenting and sending in questions so we can sort of have a conversation across across oceans, across sort of political boundaries and so on. So I want to say to those of you that are out there watching on Guam right now, half a day from, from a village or two over. For those of you watching across on the other side of the Pacific, for those of you that are watching in Hawaii, in other occupied sort of territories, those of you watching in independent Pacific states, you're so, you're so lucky. And those of you watching in the States and elsewhere, Sidzus um, Masi, thank you so much for sort of, uh, for joining the conversation. And so um, leading the conversation today will be the, this, this lovely, much darker than I am gentleman to my right, uh, Manuel Cruz. And so um, he, is, uh, he is coming back after taking a break because of uh, a death in the family and he is coming back into the conversation and he has got a lot of things to say. Yeah. He's been doing research, he's been thinking about things, he's prepping to go into his PhD program. He's like the Hulk, you want <laughs> to see him angry. No, no, I'm kidding, you don't. That was a joke, that was a joke. You don't, don't really want to. He's gainfully employed right now. He needs to stay employed for That's just right. a little while longer. But, um, but so, we've got a lot of different things to say. We've got some ideas, but we want to hear from you guys. And so for those of you that are out there, um, comment questions, mm -hmm. message me questions, um, and so I'm going to give the, the mic over to Manny now so he can sort of uh, introduce himself and introduce this event, and I'm going to open up my laptop, and ooh, I'm like a, I'm like a young millennial YouTube creator <laughs> with my laptop open. Yeah, so I'm going to preface this, uh, this teaching by first saying, well, first of all, I've, uh, I've bled out all my tears. <laughs> So uh, the Manny Cruz of, of yesteryear uh, is no more, unfortunately. But I am now comfortable saying that um, earlier today, um, I, while on break, I, I grabbed a coffee downstairs at the Port of Mocha. And um, there was uh, a 25-year-old man um, sitting behind me. And, you know, I wanted to get his idea. He looked like a millennial. He looked like he was gainfully employed, and I could really use his opinion on the topic for tonight. And it turns out that uh, this man, Jonathan, is actually was actually homeless, and he was there. Um, he had just finished uh, his uh, 
his salad or whatever that he had just purchased, and uh, he was just lounging around on his cell phone. Um, and that just goes to show, like, you know, the the mis misconception of homelessness and poverty that we have. Like, here's a man with uh, who was wearing Vans sneakers. Uh, he had jeans, um, a sweater, and uh, he it looked like he was playing on his cell phone. But come to find out, he's he's actually homeless. He had just been uh, uh, fired from his job in security, and uh, I. I didn't know that, and I asked him, what, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm homeless. I was working. I was working three jobs, um, and, you know, we, we got to talking, and I was asking him, you know, how much of that money while you were working was going to rent and putting food on the table, and he said, after paying uh, $700 in rent uh, for an apartment in Timuring, he only had $300 left um, to subsist off of uh, for the next two weeks and until his next paycheck. So... Um, well, first of all, I, I was really, I was taken aback and, you know, here I am, you know, coming in with uh, an agenda, what, what I wanted to talk to him about, and uh, I, was, I was just blown away. And I did offer a hand, um, gave my number and all that, but obviously it was really hard for me to counter that, you know, how, how, do, I, how do I engage this person? But, you know, um, hopefully, the, hopefully he gets in contact and we can build a relationship and I can sort of figure out some way where... Um, I can, I can make a difference at all, whether it be through the, the stories I choose to write or things we do here at Independent Guahan. So that's what I wanted to start off with because I think it's, it's so relevant to the discussion. And uh, I'm just gonna get into it. I prepared um, a little narrative that I'm gonna read off of. And then from there, we'll uh, just go into a bit of discussion. Uh, we have a, a good sized audience, you know, I love it. It's very intimate. So um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into it there. So. The first word in the teaching title is, of course, um, millennials, right? So I'll just get into a truism right here. When confronted by the lack of economic success among millennials, the common sense, uh, with sense being in quotation marks, argument is that millennials are lazy and entitled, okay? It's assumed not that there are just aren't as many as, job, as, many jobs as college faculty want you to believe on the day of your graduation, but that we're simply unwilling to work and incapable of hard work. But this couldn't be further from the truth, as Jonathan showed us. A 2016 Forbes article states that one-third of millennials in the U.S. economy work secondary jobs. We're obviously not doing this because we love spending every moment of our waking lives toiling away for the art of the hustle. And let's not forget that the glorification of hustle-hard pop culture is born of dire necessity. It's an idea that has been co-opted by dominant culture and misconstrued as a superficial love for the accrual of money. Debt plays a large part in the U.S. and even the local economy. Nationwide, there are over 1.4 or 1.41 trillion dollars in student loan debt. Many of those bar borrowers are millennials like ourselves, who've been sold a promise of economic prosperity and a world ripe with opportunities after completing university. Instead, graduates are met with an average debt amounting to 28 thousand dollars. Okay. So, as with anything, it's important that we take a distinctly Guahan perspective on what we know. Um, and the big crisis, I think, really is um, the lack of affordable housing. It's increasingly out of reach for many Guam residents. Um, and whether that's, that's whether you're Chamorro, Filipino, uh, what have you. Uh, the idea is that if you're not in the military, um, then unfortunately, and if you're not uh, lucky enough to come from a family of wealth, then um, affordable housing is, in, is becoming increasingly out of reach for us. 
one homelessness advocate uh, that I've spoken to over the course of the last two weeks said that 90% of rentals on Guam are priced at the $2,200 price range. Not, un not uncoincidentally, this is the near minimum U.S. military housing allowance rate that service members have access to when they seek housing off base. So let's think about that for a while. If you're an 18-year-old just out of high school, um, you, you've been told that you can make a difference, the opportunities are out there. Uh, enter the workforce just like your parents did. If you work even one, um, one steady job, you can support yourself, you can afford a roof over your head. Uh, wrong. Um, so if you're 18 years old, um, there's the individual who chooses to go into the military. Um, they have no experience, so they, they enlist as an E1. Um, again, no experience. These two individuals um, have already different, different uh, potentialities. They have, they have, there's different outcomes there. Uh, one person, the person who joins the military, gets $2,200 in excess of their regular paycheck, um, specifically for housing, you know? Whereas the other person is uh, working a minimum wage job in retail um, or um, the food industry, they're probably only making $8.25, um, the federal minimum wage, um, or probably no more than $10 an hour. Let's see. <laughs> exactly. My thoughts exactly. Thank you so much. So yeah, already there, we're, we're, you know, we're building the connections. So if you're lucky enough to have property passed on to you and you decide to build a house, you're still going to have to put a down payment on your mortgage. But... According to Bank of Guam economist Joe Bradley, fewer people on Guam are actually saving money. Is it because people are spending more of their surplus money frivolously? Yes, but only if you have surplus money to begin with. And as we see the case of Jonathan and even myself, uh, my wonderful girlfriend is here, she can attest to this, but there isn't really that much money left after you pay for essentials, you know? So there you have it. So. This, coupled with um, the contrasting image that um, the government of Guam and the business community wants to put out, wants to put out, and that's the idea that the economy is growing. Um, the question really is for whom? Uh, the hard to swallow answer is, dun dun dun, we don't know. I'm going to defer to Bradley again. Uh, the earnings of corporate upper management are largely unaccounted for in income statistics, or at least the level of economic analysis. That level of economic analysis hasn't been done. Uh, so when faced with questions like who owns the island's wealth, economists, government officials, and the Chamber of Commerce are all complacent in saying we don't know because the analysis hasn't been done. And they're okay with that. Because they can say things like, we'll see, um, they, they can say things like, it's okay to give tax cuts because these business people are reinvesting the money in the economy and it's categorically not true. So, going into our next truism tax cuts on corporations and high income earners help the economy. And this was actually said to me by a, uh, a veteran um, financial advisor. And he said it very aggressively, but I'll say it here, um, conscious that I have a, two microphones in front of me. He said, what do you think they do with that money? They're reinvesting it into the economy and donating to charities. 
According to Bradley, there is no historical indication that the former actually occurs and is a hypothetical concept that originates in Reagan-era neoliberalism. And according to Politico, it's not even clear that this occurs on a national scale either. Yet this idea is wildly popular among the upper classes for obvious reasons. There are troves of cash leaving this island. If global economic trends are any indication, so the economist Gabriel Zuckman estimates that about 55% of US-based companies Companies' profits are routed through offshore financial accounts. And in 2012, for the US, that meant 21 to $32 trillion. $32 trillion. And um, okay, so there are other means of international company, that other means, uh, sorry. There are other means that international companies use when they operate on Guam to leak profits out of the island. Um, historically, Bradley said, Japanese-owned hotels would pay uh, million-dollar management fees to um, their corporate offices in Japan. And that's just one example. I, I really wanted to touch more on that. Uh, I ran out of time, unfortunately. The other justification, um, the latter, I should say, um, the idea that corporations are good for society because they donate to charities. Um, this probably only happens once or twice annually um, on average. And these are these amounts are typically paltry, like compared to the the actual revenue that they make. Um, and I don't know that it's actually an efficient system, an efficient way for corporations to to do good on on the community. There's there's definitely a better way, I think. And uh, I won't say it here, but tax the rich. I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so. Before we go into discussion, I just wanted to share a thought also that I had today while speaking to uh, Miss uh, Catherine Titano over at uh, Gura. Man, nothing about our current trajectory makes sense. Our two biggest industries are the military and tourism. Both of these drastically affect the local community by constantly driving up the cost of living and the housing market. But yet, there are governmental and lobbyist forces like the Guam Chamber of Commerce that consistently support expanding both of these industries. Meanwhile, more and more people are finding it harder to afford housing and lack the means to put food on their tables and a roof over their heads. Yet we're told the economy is doing so well. The federal government provides tax incentives to developers like Cortec to develop affordable housing projects that make it possible to rent an apartment in Samuning for $600, but there are only so many units and even fewer opportunities for individual progression. Okay, I'm not gonna go into the E1 military thing, but you get the picture. Um, the other, the other beast here that, that has to be tackled and are, uh, more, or regulated more is, uh, is tourism. Um, another reason why there are fewer Section 8 homes that are becoming available is because uh, uh, private landowners are choosing to list their properties as Airbnb rentals. And um, they can tax it, sure, uh, but these are all Band-Aids on, on a much larger problem, let's <laughs> say. So, the extent to which the funds we receive I'm, I'm, I'm can be used. The, the low tech. I'm liking the low tech sort of gimmicks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, the money that we receive um, is often also restricted by federal guidelines, and they obviously aren't suited to the best interests of the local population, such as uh, the highway funds we receive. Um, we only receive uh, money from the federal government to, to maintain. Um, the main highways, so Marine Corps Drive. Anything in the village has to come from uh, from local money, and you know that's uh, 
a limitation on God, so many things. Yeah. So it's time for our government leaders to choose the economy or the people. Yeah. Or if you're a centrist, just say both and I'll leave you alone. Just kidding. So yeah. Good. No, thank you. Sidhu Masi Mani for, for setting up, for providing a lot of details that people don't think about. And um, one of the, so one of the things that I, I think, and so uh, we're getting some questions in, and so I, I have some questions ready for you. Um, some of them are really, really hard, just to let you know. Okay, great. So I'm, I'm warning you ahead of time, but I'm not going to tell you what they are ahead of time. <laughs> so, um, but uh, one of the main things that we got to think about here, and I like the way that you set it up, is that in any system, it's always easiest to blame the individuals in the system, right? It's always easy to say that, uh, people are just lazy, or people are, have a bad culture, or they're just islanders, they can't, you know. And in a colonial situation, it's even worse, right? Because already you have a system that doesn't want to sort of re-examine its structure, and then you also then have the fact that people are racialized in certain ways, so it's even harder to get at the structure. Because it's not just poor people, but it's also poor brown people. So the intersectionality of all weights it even more, so it's harder to, to get at those issues. But that's why I, I like what you're talking about, where you're kind of thinking, no, let's, let's, let's talk about the structure, because your average millennial today isn't somebody who's, who's buying 19 GoPros a week, and that's why they can't survive. Do people still buy GoPros? That was a thing, right? I don't it's a think thing. So. It's still a thing, no? Maybe. Okay, they, they buy 19 Instagrams? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> but, um, and so, but yeah, so I'm hoping that for those of you out there, uh, think about it from that perspective. Like, how can we get out the economic issue in Guam from a different direction where it's not the usual blame the poor, you know, blame the poor, or here, we have, here in Guam we have sort of the locals are lazy, or we have that sort of the, the, the scapegoating of certain Micronesian communities. So let's, let's get out of those, those ways, because they don't really help us anything. They're just excuses to not deal with sort of problems that are inherent in the system. All right, so are you, are you ready for a question? I don't know. I saw Adrian Cruz's name on there, and I know that guy, that guy asked tough questions. So I will, I will do my very best. So Adrian, I know you're watching right now. Whatever you do, don't ask Manny any tough questions. Put for both Munga. All right, so here's a question for you. Here's a question for you. So what do you think the potential is for rethinking housing in Guam, mm. where it's not about individual families or even extended families the way it is now, but it's more communal living, right. sort of in a traditional village sense? What are mm. your thoughts? on those sorts of possibilities? Well, just on the, on the general um, philosophy of, I don't know, I, want, I, I don't want to step too broadly, but I will say, I want to, I want to categorize it as uh, Chamorro collectivity, right? Um, and saying that, I want to talk now about um, a concept called familial capital. Um, it's familial capital, so, the way it's historically been used has been to say that um, uh, minorities can sidestep the the, uh, the obstacles, the various obstacles to uh, to success in society, by having a strong family structure. And um, I haven't written anything um, 
substantive on it yet. It's still a concept that I, I'm playing around with. But um, to my knowledge, the, the concept of familial capital hasn't uh, taken on a material form. It hasn't been applied to, um, uh, as, as a means of, resi of resistance to capitalism. And I want to take myself as an example here. Um, at my thesis defense, if, if, some of, if any of you were there, I was asked to, uh, to situate myself um, and recognize my own, um, my own affluence or my, my own um, position as uh, someone with, uh, with some sort of capital, whether that be, I think they were thinking about it uh, materially. So this person assumed that because I was able to attain a master's degree that uh, I came from a family of wealth. And this is, uh, this, this can be further from the truth again. Um, but what I do have is a strong family structure. And how does that, how does that equate to uh, my material situation? Uh, well, those of you who know me personally know that I became a father at 22. And, um, you know, there aren't many other 22-year-olds who can go on to pursue a bachelor's degree um, because they don't have the family structure, they don't have the finances to, to ensure that someone is taking care of the child while they're attending classes or um, doing, uh, like, study groups and what have you, right? Um, but, but I did. So the capital that I do have isn't so much financial. It's, uh, it's the support structure. And I think that in order for us to... Uh, reimagine um, financial structures and uh, resistance to capitalism and um, and housing even we need to we need to go back to the uh, um, the family structure we need to rebuild um, and rebase ourselves um, in a system in a family system where we have a strong uh, uh, material family base and also uh, one that is enriching to um, your spirit and uh, and um, yeah and your home life you know and uh, you know a lot of people a lot of people talk about uh, collectiveness and uh, you know uh, pre-colonial uh, indigenous society as um, something far-fetched some something like very tree huggerish but um, when you when you break it down to uh, you know materiality it's actually it 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 serves to um, help us resist uh, the forces of capitalism uh, were it not for my family and I, I mean this sincerely um, I would probably find myself in a situation a lot like uh, Jonathan who we talked about earlier so all right see Zeus Mossy now this next question here is about wages so do you think that on Guam the minimum wage should be increased to a living wage? Mm. <laughs> okay, so um, universal basic income is that what we're basically talking about? Take it, no, take it whatever way you want it. Take okay. it whatever way you want it. So, I think that housing should not be a privilege. Food on the table should not be a privilege. I think these are rights that everyone, um, you know, should be able to avail of. Um, and I think it's it's totally possible. Um, reading reading through Marx uh, very recently and um, interpretations of Karl Marx and and, and Marxism and post Marxism, um, it's clear that you know communism obviously for Marx was the end goal, but getting there um, requires uh, of all things capitalism. Uh, we we need capitalism to to build up the surpluses that we will then need to achieve socialism. 
Um, at least that's Terry Eagleton's interpretation of Marx's, uh, Marx's theories. And I can, I can make amends with capitalism and I can see that. I think, but so in order to achieve socialism also requires uh, internationality. Um, there has to be other supportive uh, state structures, I think, that uh, will help you uh, achieve um, success as a, as a socialist uh, uh, state. Um, but taking a step back, um, the idea of uh, basic income, I think, is achievable again. Um, like we mentioned, there, there is money leaking uh, out of the island, uh, whether that be through the government's um, uh, missteps or through uh, greedy corporations. The money's there, clearly. And um, there needs to be uh, more regulation of all things on the housing market. Um, we need to, okay, so another thing, another, another way that uh, um, economists like Joe Bradley overlap with, uh, with people like Karl Marx um, is the idea that if we want to see change, first of all, human behavior is, uh, is defined by the tax structure by and large. Um, so if you want to see change, if you want, if we can reimagine as a community um, our own priorities, and if we say that everyone on Guam should be able to afford housing, how are we going to do that? Um, regulate the, the real estate market. Um, don't make it beholden to uh, overseas housing allowances, for one. Uh, ensure that everyone has a roof over their heads for um, something, something achievable. I would say, I don't know, I'm just gonna throw a number out there, $500. If um, that's one less worry that the working class uh, has, to, has in their minds um, at the end of the day. And if they don't have to worry about um, whether, whether or not they'll have a roof over their heads tomorrow, or whether or not their landlord is going to increase um, uh, rent the next year, then they, can, they themselves will feel enriched and they can achieve greater things, I think. Now, um, given the way that sort of your presentation has gone so far, you know, a question that has to be asked and is frequently asked of, of myself and then uh, sort of one of, the, one of the angry white guys out there, angry old white guys, excuse me, as opposed to one of the angry old Chamorro guys out there who usually say horrible things about me on, on Facebook. Um, the question that is being posed right now, though, is isn't communism bad <laughs> and you sound like a communist oh god and so and so um why are you talking like this when if we look at sort of the examples of communism now not, not, i'm not saying this mm. i'm not saying this um but if you look at the examples of communism that are in the world today isn't it bad isn't it so what are you talking about with all of the stuff that sounds very communist okay uh, um there have been a lot of bad things done in the name of uh, achieving communism, obviously. Uh, but we have to, how do we say this? I think that, well, okay. What do we, there, there's so many ways we can, we can uh, tackle this question. Uh, first of all, there's a misconception that communism is inherently, is inherently um, a bad thing, that communism causes uh, massacres that communism causes um, uh, like negative uniformity. But I mean, at least according to theorists like Terry Eagleton, communism, according to Marx, would have ensured uh, uh, many pluralisms, many or, or multiple modes of plurality. 
if the states, if we lived in a responsible uh, state structure um, that ensured that our basic needs were met and that uh, we weren't working ourselves to the bone to accrue uh, surplus, uh, people could achieve things like a three-day work week. Uh, they can go on to pursue their dreams, their goals. Uh, they can be the greatest musician, musicians out there. They can be the greatest painters. They can be the greatest uh, travel vlogger in the world. They can, they can do really cool drone videos. Oh, God, why won't anyone let me do that? Just kidding. So, <laughs> but yeah, so um, communism isn't inherently bad. Um, and I think that a lot of people um, are, are open to uh, socialist and, and communist ideals without uh, consciously realizing it. Uh, like when I spoke to the administrator at Gura, who was talking about um, people having the right to uh, a roof over their heads and uh, you know, uh, regulating um, the private sector. These, these uh, are um, directly opposed to uh, capitalist ideals. And uh, the idea that taxes are bad um, is, is, again, uh, false. Uh, I think as a community, we need to decide uh, collectively um, what we want our taxes directed to. And uh, we need, oh, OK. With that also um, comes the misconception that communism and socialism uh, deplete um, the individual of uh, participation in democracy. Uh, this, again, is false. Um, Socialism would ensure greater democracy and greater uh, individual participation in the system. And that's not something that we, we, we're seeing right now under liberal democracy, which is uh, by and large um, uh, fueled by um, the wealthy, the, uh, the social elites, and what have you. Oh, and uh, no, thank you for your comments there. I, it's an important. I think it's always important to remind people that if you, if you take away socialism, the label socialism, and you just talk about socialist ideas, most people like them. You know, unless you're sort of like a child of Ayn Rand or something like that, then you probably really like them a lot because they're all about sort of believing in a community and supporting a community rather than sort of the, the righteousness of sort of the, the individual to decide everything for themselves or sort of do whatever they want. And so even you'll find that uh, Noam Chomsky, for example, always used to say that if you took away, if you, if you put passages from the Constitution by, side by side with the Communist Manifesto, your average American couldn't just figure out which one is which because so many of the things that people believe is good about a community aren't necessarily capitalist ideas. Actually, when you think about sort of if, you know, if you, I always, just as a personal experience, because there's, <coughs> there is, oh, he's not watching anymore. There was, there was one retired military guy who, who always gets, who always is criticizing me, saying that I'm trying to bring about a communist revolution on the island Wow, I, I didn't know that. I, he should, me and him should meet if that's my plan. I should, I should know more about what my evil plan is. Um, but he always is basically like, socialism is evil, socialism is terrible, Obama, socialist, Kenyan, Muslim. He's always kind of like that sort of thing. And I'm always amazed because every time somebody who's in the military tells me that, I'm always like, you know, the US military is a really gigantic socialist enterprise. Yeah. 
It's like one of the biggest. Like, if you look at militaries throughout most of human history, you used to have to provide your own materials. When you fought, you usually have to provide your own food when you would fight. But militaries started to socialize. They started to provide for the welfare of the soldiers in order to keep their troops happy. And the U.S. is kind of like socialist steroids with their military because they provide all of the stuff that a lot of the militaries around the world still don't necessarily provide. So if you, if you hate socialism, then you really should protest the U.S. military because if you want a capitalist military, think about plunderers and marauders and bandits. These are sort of society, these are, these are, these are um, military sort of units that are built on capitalism, built on sort of the gain of the individual, not necessarily sort of thinking about the whole or the collective. Hmm. And so. It might be useful to, um, to paint out a few uh, examples of that too, like uh, just how socialist uh, the, the U.S. military actually is. Um, well, in terms of housing, uh, since that is basically the crux of tonight's argument. Um, officers and enlisted uh, personnel uh, don't live in standards that are too uh, opposed to each other. Uh, their living conditions are, um, for all intents and purposes, the same. There are different housing units for officers, um, but the accommodations typically aren't that much greater than uh, what enlisted personnel receive. And again, um, when it comes to overseas housing allowances, the $2,200 minimum isn't that far from, uh, I, I don't know, the last time I looked at the max was like nearing $3,000, I would say. So the, the gap isn't that great, but when you step off base, um, you'll find things from um, just uh, deprived, or depraved conditions, uh, people living in the streets, obviously, um, the homelessness issue on Guam is rampant, uh, but then you'll also see the extremely stupid wealthy, um, and that's, you know, what kind of what kind of society would you want to live in, and which uh, paints a better model, and um, you know, obviously the military has done uh, a lot of uh, historical wrongs, um, but the the structure that they allow their own uh, people to live in is by and large socialist. So. So somebody in the comments has, has listed a number of socialist things that, that, that people tend to like. Roads, <laughs> the military, public schools, libraries, um, a, a number of things which sort of the idea that you, you provide for the collective good of a community and, and so on. All right, so, okay, now, speaking on the military, I have another question here. So somebody was, somebody was wondering because what they have been sort of taught is that the military is an economic driver, an engine in Guam. That's what you know they have always heard, and so they're wondering: is is the is the military on Guam really sort of just this this economic bonus to the island, or are there problems that it causes? I think this I think this comment was was spurned on by your discussion of how the housing market here right. is affected. I don't think this person had realized that the the presence of uh, militaries that are uh, military officers or that are subsidized that it affects the housing for the rest of us on the island yeah so uh, I think that's that's a false assumption um, and a lot of that has to do with the uh, uh, propaganda by the Guam Chamber of Commerce who um, actually have their own uh, military buildup uh, department or sector 
what, what have you. But there's the idea that the, the military um, spurs economic growth. And uh, this may be true in the short-term sense, um, and certainly for the economy. Um, again, thinking short-term. Um, but this basically just translates into uh, uh, service sector jobs that people can avail of for a short time. Um, and again, the money doesn't stay on island. Uh, one of the big supporters of the military buildup, of course, is the construction and trades industry. Um, I think DZSP is now uh, filing a lawsuit against the Department of the Navy uh, for um, a contract that was awarded to a, um, a continental U.S. Uh, organization. Um, so yeah, but I think, um, to my knowledge, DZSP has uh, historically supported the military for potential contracts, and uh, here they are, uh, the Department of, of the Navy, uh, awarding um, these multi-million dollar contracts to uh, companies that aren't even uh, on Guam. So, yeah, you have to question really uh, what, what the real potential for economic growth is when it comes to the military and the military buildup. Um, yeah, a lot of the, the vendors that uh, follow U.S. bases around are U.S. corporations, multinational corporations, um, food service uh, companies like, uh, like Burger King, uh, which you'll find an establishment at um, whatever BX you go to, um, you know, of all places, even in, in the desert. So, yeah, but the, these aren't, uh, I don't think the military benefits the economy in any long-term way, um, yeah. And again, the, the short-term mindset, that's, that's extremely capitalist um, because it forces, capitalism forces people to do things that are many times against their own self-interest, but they will do so for short-term short -term profit, so. 500 men sacked for refusing to ever cross a picky line. Voices down the ages warning, never cross a picky line. Never cross a picky line. Two years gone by, but still thy never ever cross a picky line. With their wives and children, they stand together. Never cross a picky line. You must never cross a picky line. Look away, look away, look away out west to San Francisco. Look away, look away, look away down south to Sydney Harbour. With the talkers of Never cross a picky line. 
somebody to clarify their question. Um, they had a, an interesting one, but uh, I just wanted clarification on it. So let me ask. Uh, all right. So, okay. So this is a more general question. And so <coughs> you, what you're saying sounds very radical, but our tomorrow's is, is, is being radical like this against Chamorro culture? Mm. And, and I'd like to hear your thoughts as well, just because I'm often asked that, right. sort of, um, especially if we think that the, the stereotypes of Pacific Islanders, right, is that we're laid back, we're chill, we're, we, if there was a revolution, certainly we would be on island time and not make it. <laughs> we would show up later and we would definitely have food with us but we would certainly not be there when it actually happens. And sort of, with the exception of sort of Dwayne The Rock Johnson, uh, the Pacific Islanders are not ready for any sort of, of radical fight. And so um, I would like to hear your thoughts on that. And so just ask you for the question. Okay, that, that is a really good question. So my personal thoughts, is, um, is being quote unquote radical uh, diametrically opposed to uh, being tomorrow? Um, no. It's not. Uh, there was uh, the the rebellion against the Spanish, obviously. Uh, there was rebellion against the Japanese before it was uh, interfered, I would say, by um, the quote-unquote American liberation of Guam. Um, but you know what's not Chamorro? Um, it's totally not Chamorro to be subservient to um, a state power that uh, uh, time and time again um, just has no regard for your humanity, who still occupies one third of your island, um, who takes away some of the best uh, properties, um, farmable properties, uh, livable properties, uh, just so they can expand uh, military functions. Um, 
and so their own children can have uh, massive playgrounds while uh, your own public uh, services and um, are all uh, depleted of um, any any substantial resources. That is not Chamorro. It's not Chamorro to do though to to be complacent with those things. Um, I think that when people think of the idea of Pacific Islanders and Chamorros as being harmonious and being um, being complacent with their places in, li in life, being uh, opening, being welcome, I question how much of that is actually real? How much of that is due to some uh, colonial fantasization about island life? Is, are they, are they um, are they projecting their their own dreams of what island life should be onto the people themselves so they can uh, justify their own wrongdoings? Are they saying that we're uh, a welcoming people so they can welcome themselves in on on our lands? That's that's what I question. And uh, yeah, personal thoughts again. But yeah, we need we need to get around this idea that um, first of all. Yeah, I can't read it from this angle, but um, no, no, Tihago, but to the to that sort of colonial logic. Mm. Ah, nice. So, or if Enganzamu fino español, if you prefer the Spanish style. <laughs> yeah. So, we also need to 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 question what is radical, really, and uh, what does it mean to be revolutionary. Again, deferring to Marx, um, a socialist revolution typically wouldn't be bloody. It wouldn't be, um, it wouldn't happen overnight. It would happen through expanded democracy. In order to achieve socialism um, and in order to, uh, to overcome a capitalist state requires democratic participation. It requires the participation of the people and we need to demand um, better leadership, and we need to demand better standards for ourselves. Um, so I refute um, this uh, person's uh, uh, assumption of what radicalism is and uh, what it means to be a complacent Chamorro. So here's a question from, uh, from our neighbors to the north, from Saipan. So what are your thoughts on agricultural revitalization through the entire Marianas Island change? This person believes that we should focus on our sustainability instead of having to rely on imported goods. Hmm. Okay, sorry, one more time. Um, I hope that in, in, a, in a reunified Mariana society, we can regulate uh, just how high they're allowed to turn the, uh, the air con up because I'm freezing <laughs> over here, so. <laughs> one more time, Fofobot. Oh. So what are your thoughts on agricultural revitalization through the entire Marianas Island chain? Mm. So um, sustainability, not, you know, sort of uh, kicking the reliance on imported goods. Okay. So there's a very thin line that we have to, that we'll have to walk, you know, if we're talking unification um, in the sense that uh, each island will have um, a specialized good uh, because um, historically, are you turning down the aircon? Oh, please, yes. Okay, so um, in in other in other scenarios in, in places in countries in South America, where after after they've accrued um, <laughs> sub <laughs> substantial uh, debt. Okay, everyone's getting up and leaving. Oh, anyways, no, I'm I'm joking. 
So after places, uh, countries in South America have uh, accrued massive debt, they've, they've, um, they've availed of uh, assistance through the International Monetary Fund, through the World Bank, uh, who've sought to impose uh, neoliberalism and, uh, and hyper-capitalism in their societies. And uh, the way they did that um, in one aspect is by uh, forcing countries to specialize in, uh, in uh, single crops and this was to the detriment of the overall survival of the local population. Um, so whereas they would um, previously be planting uh, sweet potato, but also corn and also raising cattle, they were uh, focusing their crops on a single output. So uh, on, on only producing corn. And uh, you know, your local people aren't only going to um, feed themselves off of corn. Um, there, so there's a thin line that we need to tread there. Uh, we, I think all, all of the, uh, the, the major islands in the Marianas, uh, hopefully uh, one day when we come together politically and socially, we all need to um, have uh, similar ideals about uh, the type of values that we want in our society, the, the type of trade um, system that we'd like to have, the type of um, economic structure that we'd like to see. And uh, again, with that, even I want to look even further to uh, our brothers in uh, in the larger Micronesia region, and again uh, throughout Oceania. Um, if we, as a as a Pacific uh, people, can um, can come eye to eye and um, you know determine for ourselves. Thank you. I have a jacket. Oh God. If we can if we can come together and decide um, a collective collectively. Um, the type of values that we like to see in our economic structure um, that makes all of those things uh, more achievable. All right. Oh, and, and we have a follow-up to that question. And so how about teaching farming in our schools to educate the children so that they are aware that you know, do not have to buy food from stores? Okay. And so, um, actually, well, before, so one thing that I wanted to add in because, um, when the U.S. Navy first came into Guam, that was the gospel that they sort of preached to Chamorros, is stop growing all of these different crops, but just focus on growing one crop, mm. which then you can export, which you can sell to sort of uh, companies that are, that are sending it off island. And um, Chamorros, some Chamorros that were rich and had the means, they embraced that idea, but the majority of Chamorros saw through that quite quickly. Because at that time, you know, you the money, you know, money, um, money, tikanu'uni salapi, you can't eat money, you know, so you, if you, if you kill all your crops so you can grow something that you can't eat, but you can get money for it, it's not sustainable. It's for, for those who sort of lived by agriculture before, it wasn't a great way to live your mm -hmm. life. And so one of the things that changed though, and it's something that we have to really think about here in Guam, is that after the war, when Chamorros wanted to return to the agricultural lifestyle, many of them couldn't because of the new military bases that had popped up. And going back to your pre a previous question and answer about the bases on the island, the, the bases do contribute to the economy. They definitely do in a variety of ways. But studies around the world have shown that military bases tend to stunt growth in a variety of ways, and one of the ways that they do it is that they take up a lot of land. They take up a lot of land that can't be used effectively by the community. Um, military bases tend to be super spread out. You know, they, they take, there's so much space, you know, it's nice to have that yard, 
It's nice to have those giant space age playgrounds that are on some of these military bases. But you basically, you know, what where where people once farmed here on Guam, for example, now you have military bases which you know produce small amounts of money through taxes and through sort of um, sort of indirect spending but isn't really directly benefiting the community and this is something that we can see in Okinawa for example the same sort of thing when when certain bases were closed and given back to the prefecture the the local government and the local community what studies have found is that the land the large bases the military had and the large housing complex they had were actually choking the environment in those areas. Once they could be returned for agriculture or for public housing, there it increased. It, the economy in the area sort of increased. And so, um, oh wait, let's we have a we have a guest oh, here, awesome. who sort of loves talking about these sorts of things. <laughs> and so, Debbie, you're a, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, and then let's 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 see if you are if you are in the shot. It's okay. Oh, it's oh there you're delayed. in the shot. <laughs> no, no, that, you're, you're good. Oh, and so if you don't mind introducing yourself and then sure. if you'd like to sort of share some of your thoughts. Yeah. Uh, my name is uh, Debbie Ellen, Dr. Ellen, and um, my, my thing goes back to the question that was asked in terms of agriculture. So this is something I actually just did a, a course, so it never ends, like being a parent never ends and being a learner never ends, right? Uh, it was called Educating for Sustainability. And the thing, the focus of this was on helping our young people in the schools. So this goes to the question um, where we need to really have them get involved and get their hands in the dirt. Um, it's like looking at place-based learning as well, where the kids are learning about their own soil, their own water, their own resources, uh, and how they can use those, how they grow them, um, how they need to protect them, the things that are harming them. Um, so this is a really important uh, point. I'm really glad this person brought this up um, because when we bring the kids back to where they are, um, they learn about taking care of it um, because the other companies coming in and out, they don't care so much about our soil, the, the value, you know, the, the quality of our soil or anything. Uh, if I can just bring in this one thing, it was on Earth Day, and I think I kind of mentioned this to you. You know, there was, it was some garbage, and I asked this guy if he was going to be able to pick it up and take it to the bin because my hands were full with other garbage that I'd been picking up. And he kind of looked at me and said, but it's not mine. And that brought up this thing that on our island, we've, we've disconnected our kids from the, from the islands and from the waters and from the soil and getting their hands in the dirt. And studies have shown that once you start getting kids outdoors, doing more outdoor education and gardening and that, um, it brings about better collaboration, cooperation. Um, the misbehaving goes down. Um, you know, it brings up a whole new sense of awareness and pride in where they are. A sense of knowing about where they are brings a better sense of pride and identity. So it's a really, really important uh, point. Uh, one other thing, if I can say, is on the education or educating for sustainability, is they talk about this compass model where you include these, um, you have the north, east, south, west, right? So it's, it's nature, um, economics, because it's connected to it, society, and well-being. And we often forget about the well-being of the people that live in, these, in, in our islands, right? Or any place in the world, because they're learning about countries and uh, economies that are far removed from them. So it's really better to get it back where they are 
and to include those um, kind of the compass directions, the, the things that that symbolizes so that kids reconnect with where they are and taking care of where they are. Mm. Awesome. Thank you. Sidzus Masing. And so, I don't know if you're ready for a, a Dr. Ellen, you're welcome to hang out here with us <laughs> if you'd like to. And so, um, oh, here, here is a comment. Um, so this is from a, a middle school teacher here on Guam who mentions that at his school they do have a vegetable garden mm. that the students take care of. Um, and uh, Roman, if you want to say something more about it, uh, just type it in on the comments, and I can I can and I can sort of read it on the air here. But uh, oh wait, so I wanted to oh I wanted to give you a chance to answer what was the. The, oh, you didn't have a chance to answer the, the, about the farming in schools. Did you want to address that? Because, oh, well, I think uh, you definitely touched on the importance of that. Really, um, children should be learning how to, you know, how to sustain themselves, and uh, I think that would trickle down, not in a Reagan kind of way, um, but trickle into, uh, you know, more uh, potential for for our society, for our economy. Mm -hmm. um, if you're not relying on imported goods. If um, you, your village, um, you you have uh, uh, very active farmers markets where you're not farming like teriyaki sticks and uh, other things like that, where there are actual actually substantial foods there <laughs> that aren't uh, covered in uh, high fructose corn syrup. If you can do those things as a village and as a family, even going back to the the familial capital structure, then um, you know, you know. Oh yeah, diabetes. And the diets change. Diets yeah. change in the diets. Yeah. And so, or did you want to add something on that? Well, well just I read that the next in a question. lot of the <laughs> islands, even like I remember in Yap, you know, people were moving away from the local food and they were getting the, the ramen noodles and, mm -hmm. and this and that, right? Um, so the kids became like, that was a symbol of having wealth yeah. and of being something better than who they were. Not that that's true. Um, but then that also brought about this, you know, huge increase in diabetes and, you know, being unhealthy. Mm -hmm. um, so returning to, you know, producing more local foods that you know what is being put on those foods and the soil itself will determine the taste of that particular food from the soil that it's grown in. So those kind of things all um, feed into, if yeah. you use that, you know, a healthier diet and a healthier lifestyle. Absolutely. Which we need. I agree. And so this is a, so I have a couple more questions that are showing up, but this one is a common one that we get asked. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody was wondering what the connection is between what you're talking about today and independence. Okay. And so, and, and just, just to make it more difficult to answer. <laughs> um, so this person says that we can already do a lot of what you're saying as a territory why does becoming independent, why is that necessary or why is that an important part about, about what you're talking about here today? Hmm. Okay. I think there's a lot of things that we, we can't do also. Like, again, I brought up the, the highway funds, right? Um, that are, they're, they're spelled out for us what we should use these monies for, what roads we should be maintaining. Um, meanwhile, uh, other roads that are that are equally as important as marine as marine drive um, uh, fall to the wayside. Um, they're uh, riddled with potholes and uh, and what have you, and they're they're not um, uh, commutable. 
really. So there, there are a lot of ways wherein um, the money that we receive is, uh, is also kind of like a collar on our throats. What can we do through independence? Um, well, being able to define our own political and economic structure, for one, uh, we exist um, as an arm of uh, the American uh, um, liberal, liberal democratic system. Um, uh, it's a system that uh, feigns the idea of, uh, of, object, of objectivity. It's a, it's a system that uh, feigns um, uh, a protection of, uh, of, you know, of the communal good, I guess. And uh, it's also a system that is e easily corruptible by um, uh, the, the capitalist elites, the people with money. Um, and um, you know, we're seeing that with the lobbyists and uh, the, the whole thing going on in the States with um, the NRA and um, gun violence um, and a refusal to uh, make any sort of substantive change uh, towards uh, gun control. Um, and that's just one example. So again, if we, if we can defer back to uh, Bradley and Marx uh, equally, um, taxes define human behavior. They define how we treat ourselves. If we, as a, as a Pacific uh, community, if we can tap into what made our ancestors so great, um, a desire to work with, with each other, not, um, not a desire to control one another. If we can uh, tap into that, and if we can um, come together uh, with, uh, with economists, with government leaders, because uh, by no means uh, am I um, entirely qualified to, to speak on matters of the economy. Um, I'm terrible at uh, Microsoft Excel. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, so we need to come together and we need to define what our own values are. And um, I think we'll find that uh, a lot of those are um, directly opposed to an American capitalist uh, uh, set of ideals, wherein um, people, we're, we're glorifying people for working six to seven days a week, um, three, three jobs at a time. Uh, we're, we're not glorifying the hustle, we're glorifying uh, collective good. We're, we're okay with paying taxes. Um, individually because we know that those taxes pay into services that we um, we live off of. If we were clear about uh, how much money was going to the hospital, uh, what sorts of uh, services the hospital could provide, uh, were it properly uh, funded through taxation um, that uh, is agreed upon by uh, the people, then I'm sure we'd all be um, well and good with the increasing uh, uh, the, the rate of taxes um, without uh, submitting to propaganda by the Chamber of Commerce and without submitting to propaganda by uh, um, uh, giant business leaders who are shipping their money offshore anyway. So there you have it. So Debbie, did you want to say some, because some, we're going to start wrapping it up soon. Did you want to sort of just say some thoughts before we? Oh, I don't have anything. Oh, oh, okay. Top of my head. No. Okay. Well, thank you again. All right. So we have we have a bunch more questions, but I want to make sure that we so. But I wanted to I wanted to make sure that we address this one because um, Steve McManus, he is asking, and it's and it's an important it's an important question, um, very much connected to the to what we were talking about earlier about sort of. Know, communism, socialism, and capitalism. And so he asks, 
Um, he says, I'm a strong proponent of independence, but is Guam ready to embrace a communist socialist economy? He understands that socialist practice are cap he understands that socialist practice policies are practiced in our capitalist economy, but he's getting he has the impression that you are advocating a pure communist socialist state. He says, isn't that very isn't that a very foreign concept? Will that threaten the independence movement? And so is communism, socialism, the ideology, the economic ideology for the independence movement? Mm. Well, I think if we, let's remove the, the term socialism from uh, the, the lexicon for a second. And if we just, if we look at, um, you know, uh, indigenous ideals um, and returning to the idea of what made our ancestors so great. Uh, well, one, yes, um, realistically, our, our societies were much smaller uh, but because of that, there was more interpersonal, um, interpersonal communication, uh, interrelations. Um, uh, basically, we weren't sitting behind screens uh, talking uh, mad shit about the person on the other side because we acknowledged each other as human beings. And um, the saying, um, I truly understand you, I see you. We, we understand each other and we understand um, that we need each other in order for us to survive. Um, we, need to, we need to return to that. Um, yeah, again, um, excluding uh, socialism. What would that mean? Let's say like none of this other shit happened. <laughs> Let's say we had Guam was the Wakanda of the Pacific, right? <laughs> and we were this uh, hyper, um, this hyper developed society, um, you know, uh, what would that look like if we had a society that wasn't uh, that wasn't tainted by colonialism, and we had a chance to develop for ourselves um, an economy, a political structure that was derived from our basic ideals of looking out for one another um, and through uh, through harmony and um, when it, when we're talking about power. Um, over others, it was a power that was justifiable because of your contribution to the society, not um, the amount of money that you have in your bank account. If we can return to those things, what would our economy today look like? Um, and you know, dare I say, uh, and I hope Marx uh, raises his fist in his grave for this one, but I think it might look very similar to what a socialist or what a, a communist uh, society would look like, you know, without the historic uh, massacres and stuff that other societies have been have been subjected to. But again, uh, things like the Bolshevik Re Revolution failed because uh, there were there were aggressive capitalist states uh, in the meanwhile who um, were uh, you know causing harm as well, and that that prevented uh, a successful communist society. And so, uh, uh, Pastor C, to answer directly to your question. Um, and I think somebody actually, uh, interestingly enough, uh, quoted Deng Xiaoping, <laughs> a former, you know, a former leader of China, saying that there are many ways to skin a cat, that you must consider what works in every possible situation. And if you look at China today, China is, is communist in some ways, very capitalist yeah. in other ways. And so... I think that um, a, lot of the dis a lot of this discussion is not necessarily about saying communism, socialism, or capitalism in the ways that we use them commonly, but it's about kind of getting ourselves out of that discussion and thinking about what would actually work best for
for people here? What is most in line, as Manny was saying, with the values? So, you know, when you, for example, when you say the inafresi, when you recite that, does it does it closely align? And I'm not, you know, and does it does it reflect sort of the spirit of of capitalism? It may in some way that we the, does it or does it go closer towards socialism? It may in some way. All of those are foreign concepts, and it's up to us to figure out what matches best with our needing to take care of ourselves, our needing to sustain ourselves, and our needing to protect ourselves, you know, to make sure as much as possible that we don't become one of those third world stories or those developing country stories. And so, um, so I appreciate your question because it allows us to, to really just put that out there that it's not, it's not necessarily about saying capitalism, communism, socialism, or fascism, it's, it's not really about an ism. You know, islanders, we, we adapt, you know, we pick and choose, we figure out what, what will suit us best because all of these things wash up on our shores. And so if somebody, you know, so somebody may say, don't touch that because it's bad, but we may say, actually, we can totally use this. Let's, we, can, we can incorporate this into our house and we can, we can sustain ourselves better. So, um, so yes, so I just wanted to kind of put that out there. And then, um, oh man, there's so many questions. There's so many questions. And, I'm, and I already put into the chat that we, we probably need to have another one of these pretty soon, yeah. just because lots of people have lots of questions. And then um, even, some, even some foreign journalists, there's some foreign journalists in Hawaii that are watching right now and um, hey, I'm, I'm sure the State Department is watching right now, oh. the CIA, <laughs> probably the, the Chinese military foreign intelligence services. Oh look, there's Jared Kushner. No, I'm kidding, Jared Kushner's <laughs> not there. But um, all right, so we've got, we've got about 13 minutes left if we, if we stick to our time. Mm. So now uh, what people are asking now, and it's, it's good because the conversation is shifting, people are going in and out of the chat. Now, a lot of people have some basic questions hmm. about independence. Okay. So I wanted to see what, how you wanted to go, if we wanted to get into those or if we wanted to keep talking on the, the economics, the economic rethinking stuff and, and maybe have another live stream okay. like in, in a week or two where we can address some of the basic questions that people are having. Sure. Well, also, um, we also have uh, audience members who are here physically, so I would like to uh, privilege uh, your voices as well. So, if you, if any of you had uh, any other questions you wanted to ask, you can sit over here. <laughs> Oh, dispenser. I'm just kidding. No worries. Um, well, I know that uh, in March, um, Senator Terlahi introduced a bill to uh, to immediately tax uh, short-term rental uh, units. Um, 
I'm not sure if that was voted or if that was signed into law. I, I doubt it. There's so many other things going on right now. Um, but even before that, um, the first uh, the first proponents of regulating um, the Airbnb market were uh, people like uh, Bart Jackson um, from uh, the Guam Visitors Bureau. Um, at first, I was, I was against it uh, because I viewed uh, companies like Airbnb and Uber and Lyft as things that um, afford uh, people who are busy working um, full-time jobs um, a means of uh, secondary income. And then I took a step back and I was like, wait a minute, why do people need secondary income? <laughs> so um, Airbnb is its own thing. I, I use it uh, when I go abroad. Um, but it definitely, if it's here, you know, I mean, you know, with technology and, uh, and quote unquote progress, or sorry, progress, uh, come uh, different challenges and uh, um, shifting, shifting needs. And so if, if Airbnb is here to stay, then it definitely should be a regulated market. And, um, you know, because there are ways wherein, um, I think in Hawaii, um, off island investors are buying homes specifically for Airbnb and they're removing affordable homes again. Um, they're they're taking it out of reach for for native Hawaiians and and other uh, Hawaiian or Hawaii residents uh, and people from the lower classes who who really who desperately need house or roofs over their heads. Um, they're they're being taken off the shelves uh, for investors to capitalize on um, the Airbnb industry. So it should be regulated and. Um, Again, we should agree where this money is going to and how it's being appropriated. So, oh man, so many, man. We should. I wonder if we should extend our time because because now we have some people that are. So somebody has mentioned that the law by Terlahi was signed into law. Okay. And saying that and arguing that um, Airbnb allows people, local people, to direct benefitly from the tourist market, as opposed to the. The foreign, the largely foreign-owned tourist industry, right. which doesn't benefit the island as much. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I, I agree in that regard. Um, people are are making a dollar off of, um, or a dollar directly off of uh, tourism, but, again, um, when we're when we're talking about capitalism, uh, capitalism spurs. Uh, um, the 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 primacy of of the individual, and it's not so much. Um, the, the collective unit, our society, that um, is meant to profit off of uh, capital, capitalist tendencies and capitalist policies. So, I mean, yes, it's good. Uh, if you're uh, a B, an Airbnb renter, it's good that uh, you have um, some capital for yourselves, for, or for yourself to, to survive in, in our current eco economic structure. Um, but maybe we need to rethink um, how how it's structured, how it's structured, how we can make it better, how we can make um, the the Airbnb system um, uh, suit the nuances of Guam's local economy and the needs of our people. So, so I think Dispensa Nutoro Samzu. I'm sorry to everyone that we didn't get to a lot of your questions because Manny talks too much. <laughs> He's talking. So I'm kidding. I was I was probably taking up most of the bandwidth actually with my with my long dissertations on blah, blah, blah. But um, I think this is a good question to end with. Okay. And so because uh, we're, we're coming up, we've just got about 10 minutes left. And so a lot of, um, actually a lot of the conversation so far 
what's always kind of lurking underneath the conversation is um, is the fact that you know we're we're on an we're on an island, and that we have adopted sort of a, an outsider framework for understanding ourselves and what we need to do to improve our lives. Right, this idea that that what we have to do is far away, we have to leave here, or that whatever we have, it's just coconuts, we need to get something else, or, you know, all of these sorts of things. And um, this, the question that I'm gonna ask you is, very, is also important in the context of a lot of the discussion around the UOG presidential search. Okay. Because if, if, you're, if you're not aware of it, first of all, do you not have a Facebook? <laughs> I mean, by now, Facebook is implanting apps into your frontal lobe so that you can always be on Facebook. But um, in the fact that the final three candidates for the next person to helm the university here, none of them have any, any real local connection whatsoever. And so the question, though, is, so this is from Andre Bainham, who's, uh, who's well known for the for taking a strong stand on some of the, the yes. raise issues, yeah. the, the GovGuam raise issues. So he says that Angel Santos once said, so Angel Santos said that he thought that the problem was 10,000 miles away in Washington or over the fence at Anderson. But he says that when he became senator, he discovered that the problem is us. Mm. So that, you know, Gifinotnia, we are our worst enemy. Mm. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Would you agree? Would you disagree? Would you challenge that notion and save the hardest one for last? <laughs> oh, man. Uh, read it to me one more time. So I, no, I, I know where I'm going. But so, Angel Santos, yeah. so Angel Santos once said yeah. that um, he always thought that the problem on Guam was 10,000 miles away mm -hmm. in Washington or over the fence at Anderson. But when he became a senator in the legislature, he discovered that the real problem is us. Yeah, yeah. So obviously that's hyperbole, you know. Um, Angel what Angel Santos was doing there was painting two extremes. And the, the real answer I think is that it's a mixture of both. Um, do we have problems with our, our current government? Yes. Um, but again, remember that we're emulating um, a political structure that was not of our creation. And uh, it was a, a, it's a structure that was created to benefit um, the, the wealthy. The, the elites, you know. Um, so that being said, um, there I believe that you know Gov Guam isn't completely um, uh, you know free of uh, of critique here, um, as we're seeing. Um, we, let's think about taxes, right? So again, someone asked uh, earlier, um, what could we achieve through independence economically? Uh, well, another restriction on our on our economic potential is uh, the federal tax code that is totally unsuitable for um, our demographic and uh, you know the reality of economic of, of economy here on Guam right so um, the, yes this is a system that we've inherited uh, by our administrating power the United States um, and we need to break free of, of a lot of those things. Again, we need to define for ourselves um, what type of political system we need and uh, we need for ourselves. Um, and also, on the other side of that, uh, the problem is very much still um, in Washington, D.C. Um, the fact that all of our, uh, our governmental power here is overseen by uh, Congress, um, the fact that we're basically we're playing on, on a monopoly board um, with uh, with toy money, 
um, we have uh, we have governmental leaders who, for any real uh, sense, um, are you know are are playing a role that they're they're told to play, um, uh, when in in reality um, Congress has uh, has um, overarching power over everything that goes on here. And uh, I would even argue that uh, the Department of the Navy does as well. Mm. So. And so, yeah, it's a, I like, you know, what you said about it being a mixture of both. People tend to, when you're trying to argue something, you try to move, move the reality from one end to the other, right? If you want to say that we need more, if you want to say that, uh, if you want to say more, this like pro any or excuse me dispense it but um but it's important to remember here that um one thing that i have to give um andre credit for mm -hmm. and others though is that it's an important reminder that you know even if we are supporting independence this doesn't mean that we say that like the government of guam is perfect or that we would never make mistakes all democracies Every single democracy requires vigilance. It requires engagement. And one of the things that we are limited here on Guam is that we inherited the American democracy, which is one of the weaker democracies out there. It has this, this history of exclusion. It also has sort of this, this sort of just this vague wishy-washiness about it. Why, like on Guam, when we first sort of started electing our legislator, legislatures, it was like 90% participation in elections. Now, in the, now we're mirroring the United States where it's dropping every election, less and less people vote, because actually that's the American way, is to, is to say your democracy is the best and not really do much to protect it or promote it. The United States yeah. is being tested right now with Trump because somebody was elected into the most powerful office in the land and if your democracy only allows people to participate every once in a while, then there's not much you can do if you elect somebody who is like an orange demon Cheeto person, <laughs> which Donald Trump is. And so, um, so just a reminder that, um, that even today, but particularly seeking independence in the future, democracies require engagement. The best democracies in the world are the ones where people are active, they're participating, they're learning, and they care. The sign of a bad democracy is if you go up to somebody and you ask them about something and they have no idea what you're talking about. That's, that means the media is not doing its job, it means the schools aren't doing their job, it means your average person is not doing their job. And that's not, you know, you can say it's our fault, but what did we start with at the beginning of this conversation? We're not gonna engage in this, it's just those bad natives. Mm -hmm. It's just them who don't know how to do anything. They're there's, there's nothing to be gained if we engage in that stuff. We're not gonna sort of bash the local. We're not gonna say that oh, we could never be independent because we're the most corrupt place in the world. Anytime anyone bashes the local, just point at the US federal government and say, well, at least we at least the government here didn't change the law, so now you can, you can lure bears into traps with donuts and bacon, which the Trump administration just decided to reverse the, the rule about that, because that's the biggest problem in the world right wow. now is, is bears, that, is that hunters can't lure bears with bacon and donuts. That's crazy. And so, um, 
But so, Andre, to, to sort of your point and then to everyone else, one of the most important things that, that I think that me and Manny want everyone to get from this discussion yeah. is that discussion has to take place here. We have to sort of give up on this idea that, that um, we need to import an idea or import a person or import something else that is going to save us. Get rid of that mentality. And it starts by, of course, believing in yourselves, but not believing in yourselves so that you stop paying attention, but believing in yourselves and looking around what you need to sustain and to thrive. Right. And so. Well, I mean, I know you said we were going to close like five minutes ago, but I mean, uh, I think it's only fitting that, you know, because we, we touched a lot on uh, socialism, it's important that we recognize that um, the the anthem, the Internationale, um, uh, it 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 acknowledges the rights of men, of women, uh, and uh, people of all color, um, people from uh, from different nations, um, and acknowledge, it acknowledges uh, the idea that we should all come together to to seek um, to seek unity, to seek prosperity um, through socialism. Right. Well, in a similar manner, um, the idea of independence, you know, can only be achieved um, through unity. And uh, you know, we mentioned three different three different categories of people: the millennials, Manamco, and the working class. Um, we need to recognize that uh, you know, as long as we exist under capitalism, we we many of us belong to the working class, uh, whether we be uh, regardless of our gender, regardless of our ethnicity, and we need to come together um, and uh, we need to stand up for for uh, for human rights. Uh, for the rights of indigenous people, uh, and in this context, the right of the Chamorro people to determine our own um, political destiny. And again, uh, cast aside, uh, you know, stigma over over race, uh, whether you're, um, you know, through through poverty or through race, poverty, and uh, all of those things. And let's come together and, um, yeah, oppose capitalism. I'm, just <laughs> I'm kidding. Yeah. <laughs> All right, I, I think we can, we can close yeah. it up. My laptop's almost dead. Okay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, so, Sidusmasi, to everyone out there watching, um, if you would like us to do another one of these, because we've been having uh, in-person uh, teach-ins for a while, but um, we're hoping in the near future to kind of have more uh, Fanatsu podcasts and sort of uh, online, online events like this. And we'll we'll definitely up the production values a little bit. Although I do, I do really like. This reminds me of when I was in grad school in the states, the Guam flag on the wall, <laughs> the Guam flag that's it's not flying. It's it's taped to the wall. For those of you that went to school in the states, you you probably had one of those or a CNMI flag or something like yeah. that. But um, so just as a as a point of scheduling, for those of you that want to learn more about this, and many people in the comments. You had lots of questions about um, independence that we couldn't that we couldn't get to. Sort of general questions about independence. The best place to ask those is next week, Thursday, May thirty-first, at our general assembly. And so that is a great place. So the topic that we'll be covering next week will be um, historic preservation. We'll be looking at pre historic preservation policies in Papua New Guinea and in Palau. And we'll be honoring the legacy of um, Oscar Luhan Calvo, uh, Monsignor, the third ever Chamorro priest who was a, 
who, who strongly believed in preserving Chamorro heritage. Um, and so if you have those, please, please come and join us. Um, you can listen to the presentations, and then we always have a dialogue, a chance for you to join the discussion and share your ideas. Um, but si dos mas italo, todos hemos ganado hudzung, gisan lago, giotra banda, nihita, nihita, nihita tsonig mot na estina kinalamta na ginilin at lata. Sa estina puri guinifini itautauta. So thank you all once again in Manny. Yes. You can have the final word. Oh, si dos masi. And uh, long live, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> what? Song and Moss, Zombie. Song and Moss, nice. I don't know. We're, we're just closing out. Yeah. Okay, Words of inspiration. Say, say something to inspire. Okay. <laughs> oh, I thought I did that. If I if I go on any longer, I'm going to break, burst into tears. <laughs> I'm kidding. But um, yeah, unity, that, unity, that is all. Um, see past the uh, propaganda, uh, see past uh, the Chamber of Commerce, uh, look, look beyond the headlines in the newspaper, and I say that as a journalist. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm interested in, in meeting all of you at the General Assembly, and you know, let's come to a discussion about uh, our economy and our future. Thank you. <laughs> Para ba ina farmatak nga yaman tomorrow? Para tatuli tapti idiretsota komo unnashon gihilutano. Gini minetgut niha yaman yanata. Dani guinezata nui famago umtamotna. Ina keke fan manungo. Dani keke fanet don todo itautosiha ni manyasaga giine natano. Para tanat letfet na idagwahan ni todo ini nasenyata. Kosikisinya tafan latla maulik motna. Fanatso hita latmon.